All right, turn with me there to Titus chapter 3. And we're going to again be looking at the remainder of this chapter, or all this entire chapter, 15 verses. And the title is Kind and Profitable. And that essentially is, I think, a good summary of what Paul's going to say to Titus uh, to do and for the church to be. There's, there's more that's said beyond this, but those are two words that are certainly at the heart of this whole letter. And we're going to go ahead and, and take a look at that. But so far, we've seen instruction given on how um, the church should be governed, the role of pastors and deacons. Um, we have seen Paul speak to uh, Titus about how every member within the body, not just the leadership, but how within every member of the body, breaking them up into old men, young men, old women, um, young women, how each of those uh, members of the body of Christ should be conducting them, themselves. Repeatedly, he's come back to this idea of good works. It's repeated um, uh, almost in every single chapter multiple times, uh, sometimes negatively, but um, certainly positively, that, that exhortation. Um, he's talked about how to deal with divisive people. We'll see that again. And I pray the Lord will just lead us and guide us to take these lessons for ourselves and um, be obedient followers of the Lord. We begin, and we'll just read verse 1 here. It's, well, actually, let's take it down to, let's take it down to, let's see how far do I want to go. We'll take it to, just for the context, let's take it down to verse 7. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But... When the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we'll stop right there for, for now and come and take a look at the first um, outline, major outline I want to look at is that the belie- just concerning the believer's relationship with the government. Um, so the, the, the relationship is that we are to be in obedience to them and we are to be in subjection to them. Um, this is something that is um, taught by Jesus. This is something that is taught by Paul. Paul expands this thought, and I want to actually turn there uh, to Romans chapter 13 and read this kind of expanded thought on how our relationship should be with the government. He says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. So there's no exemption clause here, is there? For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. And boy, that is a true little phrase right there. They attend continually to that. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So this is a, something that is a, is a challenge uh, when the government begins to uh, place its pressure upon us. And some will have a different pressure point, right? Some people will feel it quite soon, and you have felt it since you, know, you were old enough to think about these things. And then others are um, 
much more compliant by maybe just personality and so forth. The political environment that existed when Paul wrote this was not one that was filled with Christian values and love for the Christian faith. They were angry and hostile towards the gospel. And um, even Paul's going to find himself being put to death under that authority, as did almost all of the apostles save John. He didn't because God miraculously preserved his life. But they caused trouble and harm for followers. And, um, and this was the case for centuries. So it wasn't a, a moral or Christian political government that, that Paul's alluding to. He is not talking about somehow a godly form of, of Israel. Um, they were in rebellion. Of course, they crucified the Lord. But Paul's writing to those that are living in Rome when he writes this. And Titus is, uh, or Paul's writing to Titus, who's on the island of Crete, all of which would have been out of the jurisdiction of Israel. So it's not like you have this godly monarchy that has been established. Even that, it had been in Israel, was so far from the mark. Jesus was in constant conflict with those leaders. So there was all kinds of corruption. There was all kinds of immorality and even hostility when, when Paul spoke these words to Titus, when he spoke them uh, to the believers in Rome, and even when Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God. Until they ask us to be disobedient in our um, following of the Lord. So for Peter and John, when they were told that they should no longer preach in the name of Jesus Christ, they said, well, sorry, can't help you there. We must speak in the name of Jesus. And that's where they go back in and pray for boldness to speak and, and ask that the Lord would show his miracles and power in them. So this is how they dealt with it. They were willing to obey. This is the word of the Lord. We should be in subjection to the government, paying the taxes and all the rest until they ask us to be disobedient. Now here's the interesting thing for us living in America. We have a representative government. This was not a representative government when Paul spoke. And so we have certain privileges and rights that are built into the laws of our land that allow us to challenge leaders in elections and challenge laws in the courts. This is something that is not outside of the law. These are opportunities given to us to walk those out. And so we have those opportunities where we can walk that out. We have just come out of a season where we saw a lot of things challenged in the court. And this is something that, you know, and I will not solve the, the dilemma here this evening, but, you know, there was such various opinions within the church of whether or not gathering together um, as, as believers in a congregational setting was the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. And so um, some saw this as a clear pressure and persecution against the church. Others argued and reasoned, no, that's not the case. And I honestly think they're probably, what, what state were you in? Who was your governor? What were they doing? Probably is going to lead you to some of those answers. I think when you have places where the strip bars and the, you know, um, the, the casinos are open, but churches aren't allowed to meet, it probably was an unfair handling of that. But it wasn't that way everywhere, and believers had difference of opinions. And um, I can, I'm just going to tell you, it was extremely challenging to walk out Romans chapter 13, what Paul is saying here. And um, some people that we love and still love um, left the church because we did continue to meet. They thought this was a direct violation of this. Maybe you even felt that way, but you kind of hung in with us and you have that. And so some people very graciously came to me and said, I think you're in sin, Troy. I think you're in rebellion. I think the leadership has made the mistake to not be in subjection to the governing authorities and that you're meeting. And, and, and really, we, you know, we, we spaced out. We had the masks out. We had that out there. The staff all did this. Leadership, you know, wore the masks and we, we met that. But we did not try to put that um, we did not try to exercise authority over you on those matters. 
So we gave freedom for people to make that choice, and some wanted us to function in that place of enforcing that. And so um, we, we, whether you like it or not, maybe you'll applaud it. Maybe you, I'm not asking for applause, by the way. Please don't applaud. <laughs> Please don't do that. But you know what, what we determined is I didn't check your registration when you pulled in the parking lot, and I'm not going to check your mask. That is a matter of, if you aren't paying your registration on your taxes uh, on this, and that's between you and the Lord, and um, you'll have to deal with that. And, and same on this matter. So, but some felt like it was a, a real mistake and that we shouldn't do that. And then we got to that place where we were, you know, the, the six feet was turning into five, which was turning into four and a half, which was turning into four feet of distancing. Why? Because we, we had so many people coming in. So then I challenged in a very loving way whether this was the right thing to do. Um, and looking at this passage together with that, that husband and wife, and a couple, many couples, and I'll have to say nobody was ever um, bitterly angry or anything like that. We came to a disagreement on this. We had a different opinion. But I, I'll tell you where I, I ended up landing. We ended up landing on this, and that was um, I don't think what they were trying to do was right and legal, and it was going to limit this and it was fought out in the, the courts and in many cases it turned out that where they stepped was they overstepped their their boundaries and they couldn't go as it was not they were not they did not have the authority to go as far as they did in many of these instances and the courts corrected that so praise the lord for those who challenged these things in the court and for those that were representing them and pushed back on that level you may not agree with that but that's that's my take on it. I'm just trying to be candid with you on how this was walked out in a very real situation that we all just faced. But for me, that came down to this is I'm either going to have to turn people away at the door and say, you can't come in, or um, we're just going to have to say, come on in. And so was that easy? That was not easy. I'm, I'm pretty much a, I'm a, I obey the law. I mean, I, I pay my taxes. I pay all of that stuff, that which they attend to continually, I, in return, give them what they ask for. Don't look to uh, violate. I'm not rebellious like that. But for me, and only when I stand before the Lord, I think will I have the final answer on this. But for me, I would rather stand before the Lord and hear him say, you know, you really should have complied with the government. What they were doing was okay. It was right, you know. And say, you know, I'm not pleased with you. I'd, I would rather take that one than take the one that said, why did you close the doors when needy people were coming in and they were flooding into that, you know, to the place where you're pastoring and you shut the doors. For me, this is a difficult, difficult thing. And, and that's why I was like, I, all right, I'm good. this is not crystal clear to me, but this is the decision. I'm willing to take um, getting in trouble for this, not for that. Lord, give us wisdom, give us grace. And so I, I'm taking the time to explain. It's not because I really care to go through all the COVID stuff again, but you, I'm sure it's a question in some people's mind. It's like, yeah, you, you stayed open and you kept on doing things. Yeah, we did. We did. And, and those are the reasons why. Um, one, because you know, we're representative of government, and many of those things were being challenged in court, and I wanted to see what the outcome was going to be. Um, and also, I just would rather stand before the Lord and say, sorry, I took the, that command to not forsake the gathering together of believers to be applicable even under these circumstances um, than to say, why did you not open the doors when people were coming? So that, that's kind of how we walked it out. And um, for those who handled it differently and maybe did close the doors, I, I want you to know that we should walk very humbly with our opinion. Because depending on... The congregation and um, where it was in a city, the kind of city it was, if it was near a big metropolitan, if it was near the inner city. I mean, there were so many factors that were pressing in. And I can, I can say this pretty confidently, that I think if uh, some of my friends would have tried to approach us the same exact way we did, it would have ended up in probably a big nightmare in their, in their congregations. But I can also say, if they would have tried to apply what they walked in here, I think it would have equally ended up in a big nightmare. What am I saying? I think that this was a situation where we all had to seek the Lord and, and walk through this and try and come to a right conclusion. Therefore, 
I think we should all walk humbly with one another. And you may have a strong opinion. I'm sure you have a strong opinion on, on whether you, you should have been done this way or that way. But you know, really, there's not a lot of verses to go with. And those who didn't, I, I'll tell you what happened in one, one evening. I had a mask on, and um, I had somebody come up to me and say, you know, I really think you're making a mistake by not making everybody wear masks. And I said, well, I understand why you think that and feel that, but this is what we've done, and I'm, you know, this is how we're carrying it out. With my mask on, I said this. I walked 20 feet from around that door over to the middle, and I had somebody come up and rebuke me for walking in fear because I had a mask on. <laughs> and that, that's, so what's the right answer? You know, was it an unloving thing to do, or was it a lack of faith? Was it, I mean, so these were the challenges that, that, that we all had, and um, uh, we tried very carefully to walk in such a way with our decisions that in making our decision, we did not condemn another church down the road or another believer that had a different opinion on this. And so, um, yeah, this is a challenge for us. And um, I'm sure we'll be challenged by these things again. What we need to be careful of in all of this, though, as we yield and submit and we're subject to those that are over us and we're paying our taxes and our customs and we're showing honor to them is that we don't lose the vision for lost souls. Because I think that in the midst of not only COVID, we had a raucous election, right? We had a raucous election. There are things that were in upheaval culturally. And it really caused us to, to again, lots of strong opinions. But I would encourage people, again, having the representative government, I would say, um, when you have opportunity to let your voice be known, you can write a letter, you can vote, um, you can, if need be, you can even go to court to try and challenge some of the application of laws. I think all of these things are, are appropriate, and I wouldn't condemn anybody for doing them. I think we have a stewardship in this representative form of government, and I think we should do this. I, I know, again, some will say, you know, um, that everything needs to be about politics, and we'll connect it back to just being a faithful Christian leader and a faithful light and salt in the, in the country, in the community. And then others will go and say, I don't think we should have anything to do with the government and do not even walk um, in, sh in, in voting and feel like this is just this is otherworldly things and we need to be just involved with the kingdom of God. And so, I, again, I think that there's a, a balance that we've tried to walk in, what I would call a balance, and that is you have stewardship given to you. And, and you can have a say of what happens in, um, in the government to some degree as you vote and as you, you write letters, as you get involved. But in all of that, what we should never lose sight of is the mission that has been commanded to us by King Jesus. And that is lost souls. If saving America is as important to you as lost souls, not my opinion. I'm just going to just, just, well, you need an adjustment because souls are more important. The, you know what? This, this country is a couple hundred years old and souls have been around for a long time. And whatever happens, should the Lord tarry with this country, souls will continue to be around. And you could, we could save whatever that means the country and shape it into the image of what you think or we think or they think is a right thing. But at the end of the day, if we've done that and we have not been able to preach the gospel and see souls saved, what have we really done? Souls are what matter. Souls are what matter. And this is the mission that we have been given. It's kind of like this. The building is on fire and our job is to get as many of the body, uh, many people out as we possibly can. If we get them all out, turn your attention to the building. I'm, again, there's stewardship that we can walk in, right? But this idea that we would forsake the great commission and the preaching of the gospel to see people come to faith and, and just save you know, this, this form of government, I think would be a real mistake it'd be a tragedy and it would be 
disobedient. So you, I think we'll walk that out differently. But, but I think what we should all be able to quickly agree on is that the Great, pre, the great Commission, the preaching of the gospel, is, is our primary duty. And you have a stewardship, walk in that stewardship as a citizen of the country. Don't waste it. Allow the word of God to inform you and instruct you on what the important issues are. (laughs) Let the word of God instruct you and inform you on what the important issues are. Don't let Facebook do that for you. Don't let headlines of certain news organizations, whatever they be, inform you. You have a Bible. Open it, read it, and understand what are the most important issues and, uh, and look for, and, and pray for wisdom to vote for those that will most align themselves with that view. And this is my encouragement. So, yes, we, we are to be subject to the rulers and authorities. We're to obey them. And we are given a great privilege. Exercise that. But don't ever get to the place where you think saving this country is more important than saving souls. It's not. And, um, you know, say, yeah, but, you know, you know, they stole the election. Well, if the election was stolen, I won't argue with it, God allowed it to happen. God is the one who puts people in authority. Did you, you read that with me? And so if God allows that, he puts people in authority and he takes them down, then what does that mean? That he allowed somebody to be rightfully elected, an election to be stolen, and somebody else put in. You can go wrestle that one out. And maybe you don't believe the election is stolen. I'm not saying it is or it isn't. But I'm just trying to give some, some thoughts of Scripture that help us think through um, the chaos that we are in the midst of. And he says that we should, at the end of verse 1, be ready for every good work. Every good work. Again, the saving of souls, the, the um, building up the body of Christ. Uh, these are the important things that we should do. And, and you know, when you look at the history of the church around the world, but even if you look in our own country, if you look at the history of the church and individual believers, born again, Jesus-following believers, you will see that when you look at all of the major institutions of our country, it was Christians that were doing it. It was Christians who were establishing hospitals. It was Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians that was leading the way in the scientific revolution. It it was believers that were um, forging the way in education. Why is there... Wherever you find the gospel of having uh, gone, you'll see a huge emphasis on, on literacy. Why? Because people, Christians wanted people to be able to read the Bible. And education, the institutions, if you look at the major institutions in our own country, the top colleges, and you research their history, you're going to find out it was Bible-believing, Jesus-loving followers that established them. The anti-slavery movement was, was led by Christians that were appalled by what was going on. If you doubt what I'm saying, I've got a book for you to read. You write it down. It's called Jesus Skeptic. Jesus Skeptic. It's a great book. It's somewhat repetitious, but it makes this point so clearly, and it will give you primary um, information in that research. But this idea is that we should be And I'm kind of putting this in the context of like our country and just being citizens because he's talking about the government. And then he says, be ready for every good work. And I think that we can look back and we see many believers and many, you know, churches that have gone before us that did so many good works. And we can step, I mean, just like culture shifting, just global impacting good works. It, It is really uh, an amazing thing that we see. As they, and they didn't just do it for the purpose of you know, good health care or the purpose of literacy or the purpose of uh, freeing people. They were motivated by their love for Christ and they saw these as ways to show the love of the Lord. Um, and so I'm challenged by that thought. Be ready for every good work. What are the good works that God wants us to do? What is the good work that God wants you to do? How does God want to raise you up to be one that is, maybe you're going to impact your neighbor. Maybe you're going to impact the people at your work. Maybe you're going to impact your neighbors. 
Maybe God will raise you up to impact an entire culture, an entire generation with good works. But sadly, what we see so many believers, so-called believers saying is that we're going to do good works, but we're not going to preach Jesus. We're not going to name the name of Christ. And this is not the way to do it. And again, if you just take some time to read, you'll find out. These, were, these men and women who led the charge in all these different ways that we described, they did it, and they let people know about their faith, and they did it in the name of Christ. They were not ashamed to be naming his name and to be even using this as gospel opportunities. But those who say, well, we can't you know, give a cup of cold water and preach the gospel at the same time, I guess they don't know what Jesus said. Because what he said is that we should be willing to give a cup of cold water to the weary in his name. It's good to give a cup of cold water. It's good to help people out in their need. It's good to be full of good works. But why are we doing these things? It matters that we give the reason why. I'm doing this because I can see that need and I hope it's a blessing to you. But I also want you to know that I'm doing this because I'm a Jesus follower. And Jesus has been so kind and good to me. And that has motivated me to come and be kind and good to you. But also to let you know of his kindness and goodness. And for some, they, they act like this is like such a difficult thing to do. We can either preach the gospel or we can do good works. I, why is that? Why can we not just like put those two together? You know? And, not, and you know, if we're to take the, the converse, if you see somebody dying of thirst and you're, you know, got a cooler full of water, and all you want to do is preach the gospel, there's something wrong with you, right? I mean, we do both of these things. And so um, this is, I think, just in the context of, you know, subject to rulers and, and to be ready for every good work is we should be thinking kind of on that, that large level of how can we do good works in our community. I challenge you to think about this and pray about this as family and as brothers and sisters in the Lord and to be led in it. In verse 2, we read about being gentle and humble. He says, speak evil of no one. To be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. So the believer is commanded to react to difficult people and situations, because that's kind of when you need to act like this, right? Um, That's very different than the way the world responds. You speak evil of no one. You're peaceable. You're the kind of person that it's easy to make peace with. You're gentle. You're not riding over people. You're not shouting over people. You show humility to all men. Again, our mission is to see the lost come to salvation, not to get in a fight and win. You win the fight, but if you've lost the soul, have you really done anything of great significance? Certainly not of eternal and so we got to be careful. There's such hostility. There's such um, uh, an angry spirit that exists in our world today. And we are told how to conduct ourselves. That we are to speak evil of no one. That we're to be peaceable, gentle, showing humility to all people. A posture of peace. Willing to hear what somebody else has to say. And, and, and Paul in Romans said that we should not be wise in our own opinion. But can I just say that all of us, if you've read headlines and three quarters, you know, quarter of the article about a worldwide situation, can we all just agree for a second here? We don't know what we're talking about. You, do, you don't know and I don't know what we're talking about. If all I've done is read a headline and a few Twitter feeds about a complicated international issue. And I was like, well, I read it. You really didn't read it. You read somebody's opinion, and you didn't even get through that, all of that. And and so what we need to do is, I mean, if we're going to speak on these things, let's at least take the time to research them. And even after we've researched them, let's make certain that as we speak that we are not wise in our own opinion. But, I mean, even if you have wisdom, you don't take the attitude of being the wise guy, there's humility, there's gentleness, and how you deal with the truth that you have discovered. It's easy to blast something out. 
But what is happening? So we pray for the lost. We love our enemies. We share with them. We're not trying to win the argument with them. Our mission isn't just to see nice people get saved. Our mission isn't just to see people who look just like our family come to faith and be a part of what we're doing. Our mission is to see the down and out, those that are in the hedges, those that are in the byways, those that, the immoral, the rude, the obnoxious, the gang member, the, the, the addict, and those that are um, just hostile towards the gospel. These are the people we want to see get saved. These are the people we want to see come to Christ. But if you have a red face and veins popping out of your neck as you yell and scream about them because of some issue, I don't think we're going to win them. To Christ. And so Paul is giving us instruction of how we should conduct ourselves. In verses three through seven, he says, Now remember God's kindness. So this is kind of, he anticipates the response of people saying, Yeah, but you know what? And he says, Hang on, before you make your argument, remember what kind of fool you were before you got saved. For we ourselves were once foolish we were once disobedient we were once deceived we were once serving our various lusts and pleasures living in malice and envy and hateful and hating one another we used to be just like them and then you experienced the mercy of God and he changed you and he transformed you but we got to be careful that we don't throw these people away. We were once lost, right? We were once in that terrible state of not knowing the Lord. We were once in the miry pit, you know, you know, sinking in our own sin and are deceived by, this, by Satan. So he says there in verse 3, you were once lost, and, and, and now you need to remember this. Well, yeah, but my, my lust wasn't as bad as their lust. My disobedience wasn't as bad as their disobedience. My hatred was never like that kind of a hatred. And we began to sanitize where we've come from. And maybe there's some truth to that, even if it is. It doesn't change this. Is that you got to know where you came from. This is why we speak evil of no one. This is why we're peaceable with people. This is why we are gentle. This is why we show humility to all men. Because we were once... Like verse 3. And then verses 4 or 7, what happened? We experienced God's mercy. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. So this is the deal. God came and he showed up in your life and in my life, not when we worked it all out, but when we were still a mess. He showed up. Well, but I'm not as bad as them. According to our standards, how much higher on that scale are you when you put God on that scale too? So if God's the ultimate standard and he came to us, that is a, that, you know, the, the incarnation of Jesus becoming a man and coming and dying on the cross, that step down was huge. You can't even begin to compare it. It was the divine coming to the created. It was the infinite coming to the finite. But now when you take that next step down and you go from not so bad guy, but guy that's totally lost, woman totally lost in sin, living in malice, envy, hating you people, being deceived and disobedient, and you now go to the person that's worse than you, how far of a step down is it in that scale? You know, good luck measuring it. Oh, we can, though. We can measure it, can't we? And we even have parables that we see in Scripture. Or not parables, we have stories that Jesus observed of the man that comes in, you know, a sinner, beating his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me. But there's somebody that was also in that room and saying, God, I'm glad I'm not like that sinner. And Jesus said, guess who went home right with God? It was the one that was beating his chest saying, have mercy on me. And so the Lord came, and he saved us. He washed us. He renewed us in the Holy Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit took the work of Christ upon the cross. He applied it to our life, made us new. And then he poured out, verse 6, 
he, whom he poured out the Holy Spirit upon us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so we think of that Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell upon the church, fell upon believers. And so not only that, that having been justified, verse 7, by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are in the, a pit of sin, and he describes what that pit looked like in verse 3. This is God's opinion of you before getting saved. God's opinion of you and me and all of us before getting saved is foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, loving in malice, envy, hateful, and hating one another. That's what God thinks of mankind outside of salvation. But then he changed us and he renewed us and he poured out his spirit upon us and he justified us by his grace, not by works. And we became heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I mean, well, I mean from, from the pit of disobedience to the heights of God's love and, and, um, and, and riches being poured out. What a change. And so in verses 3 through 7, it is all meant to shut the mouth of the one who says, yeah, but I don't think I've got to be peaceable and kind with them. I don't think I've got to do that because, you know what, they're, they're really messed up. And the Lord's like, you were messed up. Don't forget it. It's good to remember where we came from. So we don't condone sin. We don't say, oh, well, I was just like you and it doesn't matter. Um, we're going to accept you just the way uh, you are. And, you know, we're not going to call you to repentance. No, that's not it either. We, we come and we call people to repentance. But as we, we go to them, we go to them with kindness and love and peace. And we speak the truth in love. But it's both of those things. You speak the truth and you do it in love. We all deserve God's wrath, but thanks be to God that he showed us mercy. And you know, just as we were changed by the power of the gospel, the regenerating of the spirit, so this world needs that. You can't reform them. I can't reform them. It's Christ that reforms them. He's the one that changes them. We keep on moving in verse 8. We see that God's call for continual good work. So again, again, this book emphasizes this over and over again. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Continually affirm constantly the things that I said really kind of you know, going back to the beginning of the book. Got to do that. Affirm these things. What I've already told you, keep on saying them over and over again, Titus. Um, and he says that we should maintain good works. These things are good and profitable. We should be profitable people because of our faith in Jesus Christ. This is how the world should experience us. Whether or not they will be able to see it or not, it's a different question. But when at the end of the day, the Lord should be able to look and say, my people have been profitable to those that are around them. It's been for their good. And, and we are to maintain these good works. Um, again, throughout this letter, he's been emphasizing this. Consistent part of the believer's life. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So when the world sees us showing kindness and love, preaching the gospel, giving the cup of cold water, having an impact upon our community, seeing the people in need and going to them, that when they see these ways in which we're walking and working, um, they will glorify our Father in heaven. But if we are not going to mention why we're doing the good things, then they're going to glorify who? The person doing it. So whenever we're doing kind and good deeds, we, we, again, we have to let them know it's, it's because of the Lord. But this is it. Good works are meant to be a light to the world around us. They see it and they're drawn to it. The kindness, the lending a helping hand, comforting those that are hurt, giving of our time, giving of our compassion, giving of our, even our money to help them out, to Discuss the ways that you can do this. Verses 9 through 11. 
talks about our conduct with divisive people. And I would say this is where a lot of what we talked about is more kind of how we deal with division and conflict on the outside. This is more on the inside of the church. Avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. So avoid the foolish arguments with people. Don't get caught up into these these things that, that there's no certainty into them. It's uncertain. There's, there's, it's not going to produce. But when you get to the end of the argument, what do, does it produce? Why well, won the argument? Well, that's nothing. <laughs> that doesn't accomplish anything. And, and so he talks about the genealogies. And um, you won't find this in the genealogies of Scripture, but um, it was very common that... Um, in between the different names, there would be all these, ins- they would insert these fictitious stories, these mythologies about different things. And it was not based upon the Word of God, it just was the writings and the imaginations of people. And so they would begin to go through these genealogies. We don't have a lot of information about this, really, um, but strivings about the law. So we, we should not do that. Now, he says quite strongly, Titus. Um, if you deal with a guy, if you deal with somebody in the church once and twice and they're causing a division, know that that person is warped and sinning. You're to reject him. You're to reject that person. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. The Lord does not like those that come and divide the body of Christ. Why? why? Of course, when Proverbs was written, there was no body of Christ. It was just the, the family of, of, um, you know, of Israel. But taking this and applying it today... Uh, it still remains true that the Lord, he hates it when there is discord sown among the body of Christ. And um, why is that? Why does this bother him so much? And if you just turn back a couple of pages to Ephesians, a passage I often refer to on this point, Ephesians chapter 2, and we've got to read a few verses to catch the full context of it. But verse 14, for he himself is our peace, Jesus is, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Unity within the body of Christ, was worked out on the cross. And there is probably, can can you see why God would be so against those that would want to divide? Jesus, he certainly died on the cross to to pay uh, the penalty for our sins. That is an obvious work. But it's also obvious that he died to bring unity. The last thing you want to be found or I want to be found doing is sowing discord among the body that Jesus died on the cross to bring together as one. Paul uses strong language. He says that this person is warped and they are sinning. It is a sinful thing to divide brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and so we must watch our heart. Now he, he says if somebody's going to do this and they're going to try to divide the body of Christ, they're going to um, you know, bring this in, hey, reject them, remove them, get them out. And so uh, there's plenty of room for us to have difference of opinions. There is room for us to even disagree with each other. I mean, there's, there's opportunity where, I mean, you know, I don't recommend it, but sometimes that disagreement might even get loud. And, and all of that can happen without there being division. But when we try to pull people into this team and to that team, and now we begin to tear 
apart the fellowship of a brother or sister. If you or I saying something or doing something to another brother, uh, into the, the ear of a brother or sister, that would cause them to stop having fellowship over some personal offense, man, that is a dangerous place to be acting and behaving. Yeah, but it's true. Well, just take it on the chin. Just get over it. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Confront them, and if you can't do that, then just get over it. You know, and this is what Paul said to the Corinthians. It's biblical what I'm saying. He says, why don't you guys rather suffer wrong than take one another to court? I mean, you, you are so into your own rights that you would rather bring shame upon the name of Christ than just suffer a little bit of loss. I'm not saying you shouldn't confront, confront them. The Bible commands it. But after you've gone through that whole process, you are not now free to go divide the body of Christ. Now, this was a heretic and it was being divided around matters of uh, doctrine and teaching. But I believe the same is true among those that would just seek to divide the body of Christ. We wrap it up there in verses 12 through 15. And the point here is just to be fruitful in good works. Again, returning to this theme of, of good works. When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste that they may lack nothing. So here's one way in which the church specifically gave um, and that was to those that were doing the work of ministry as they traveled about missionaries, you, you know, traveling pastors and, and stuff. They would say, hey, help them along. Give them the money they need. Give them the supplies that they need. And verse 14 says, let your people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be fruitful, unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. So, he tells them that to be continually in good works, and here he says maintain good works. So the idea is that a, a functioning member within the body of Christ. Listen, there's a lot of members in the body of Christ. If you're a believer, you're a member in the body of Christ. The question is, are you a functioning member? If you're not walking in good works, you are not a functioning member. You're to function in your giftedness. You're to function in that where the, the needs are around you. So it's not a question, it's not enough to say, well, I'm a member of the body of Christ. That's good, that's first. But are you a functioning member? I remember a, a friend of mine was asked the question, and it was related to me um, through a mutual friend, and, and the question was, say, hey, you know, you know, how's the church going? You know, is it growing? How many people are there? And he said, he goes, functioning members or non-functioning members? And I, I thought it was a great way to, to consider this. And so you can hear the exhortation all through the book of Titus. It was commanded by Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to tell Titus to make certain that the church is involved in good works. Well, I'm just too tired. Okay, is that going to work for you when you look into Jesus' eyes? It may work to the person who asked you to help them. It may, you may feel good even saying it to yourself right now. But when you stand before Jesus, are you going to be okay with being unfruitful? Because whatever reason you have here and now, I, I think just run it through the, the conversation with Jesus in heaven. Are you going to be okay with it? So, yeah, we, we certainly should be involved. We should do the, uh, the, the good works. Um, and even meet the urgent need, which I always look at this, to meet the urgent needs means that thing that pops up without any notification. In other words, it's not something that is a, a scheduled, here's a way to come in and serve and to help out. He's like, well, I've got to have a plan before I can help out. Well, the Bible says meet the urgent need. Yeah, but I'm a planner. But life doesn't always let you plan. And so when something pops up in somebody's life, if you're there, Guess who's on duty? It's you. It's me. I've got to do this right now. This is an urgent need. Now listen, an urgent need is not I've been sinning for 20 years, ignoring every you know, time I've been convicted and challenged by brothers and sisters to walk in the Lord, and now finally the consequences have come down upon me. That's not an urgent need. 
You have a need, but it's not urgent in the sense that he's using it. An urgent need is, uh, you know, something happened unexpectedly. Um, sinning for 20 years and dealing with consequences is not unexpected. That's fully expected. But a car breaking down, somebody getting sick, um, you know, you can make your own list of, of things, and we should be quick to respond to that and not just turn a blind eye and walk away. And so that's my exhortation to you, as it was to, um, to Titus from Paul, which came from the Lord. Get moving. Use your spiritual gifts. Meet the urgent need, yes, that's part of it. But the other part of it that's going to make up most of your life is the maintaining of good works. There's a regular habit of doing good things, which to me, it's a, it could be a long list, but certainly right at the center of it is walking in your spiritual giftedness. You've been given a spiritual gift. Find out what that is. If you don't know what it is, meet with a home fellowship leader, meet with one of the pastors, uh, meet with a mature brother or a sister, Ask somebody who knows you well and say, where do you see me functioning? Where do you see me doing a good job, you know, in the church? And, and begin and step out. Well, what if I step out to do a good work and that's not really it? I think we'll be all right. You'll figure out that that's not the best place for you to serve. Your gift, more gifted may be over here, but in the meantime, you've done something. So a very practical book uh, given to uh, Titus and the believers there in Crete. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that you allow us to touch your kingdom. That you allow us to put our hands on your plow and work your field in your name. Lord, you're not ashamed of us. You take a lot of risk each and every time you hand something off to us. And we are grateful that you give us the opportunity to do that. Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk in such a way that we are a light, we are a witness. We're a witness as we relate to the government. We're a witness as we relate to honorary people out in the community, that we're a light and a witness in the way we love one another, the way we serve. Help us, Lord, to be those that are continually maintaining good works, being fruitful for your glory and your honor. Lord, we ask that you would raise us up and we thank you for the many doors you've opened in our community. But Lord, help us to be those that continue to shine your light, continue to be a, a cup of cold water. That each and every time we would be coming, that Lord, there would not be dread of people, but they would just, they would, they would have a smile on their face seeing us come, knowing that we come with peace, we come with kindness, we come to do something good in their hearts and in their lives. Lord, we need you. We're grateful that you have abundantly poured out your spirit upon us. But Lord, we say, do it again. Lord, fill us afresh with your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.